ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and today on ID the Future, it's the second of three parts of a debate not often heard in the world of intelligent design, and yet an important one. Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box and other highly influential ID books, talks with Catholic theologian and philosopher Matthew Ramage. Their topic is intelligent design in light of Roman Catholicism's rich intellectual and theological heritage, as represented by Dr. Ramage. It's a discussion of real interest to anyone who wants to think deeply about ID and biological origins. They're hosted by Pat Flynn on his Philosophy for the People podcast. He'll be the first one you hear speaking as we begin this second part. So again, I want to keep separate things separate because, uh, Matt, you're a theologian. We're all Catholics here, so we're kind of like on the on the grand scheme, we're all, we're all in agreement, right? But there's a lot of people who, are, <laughs> who aren't on board <laughs> with that, right? And there's a lot of people who still really think that the naturalistic paradigm is like totally supported by... Darwinism, right? Um, and that's where I think Mike's project actually is really useful, even if it might not always be super useful to the theologian. It's really useful uh, for the for the I guess the wider cultural debate because let's be honest, most people most people aren't going to have the time nor the interest, uh, and I don't want to sound too rude, nor the capacity to understand Aquinas's Deante argument for the existence of God, right? But there's something very basic and intuitive about the inference from irreducible complexity to intelligent design, right? It just sort of like people just sort of get that, like like kind of you know, and not to say that it's a it's a kindergarten type of argument. It gets very elegant as as Mike defends it in great detail in his books. But it's a it's it's in a way much more accessible, I think, to the average non-specialist than say the the metaphysics of of Aquinas is for the demonstrations of God. So I think that's something that should be taken into account of even if it's not necessarily of great interest to the theologian, what's its purpose or usefulness in, in the wider debate, especially people who, who do not hold a religious worldview and might even think that Darwinism has, has really undercut the religious worldview. So that's one thing to keep in mind, and I'd like your comments on that, Matt. The second is going now back to people who might hold our worldview is I think the concern, or at least the question, is like one of intervention, right? So a lot of times Thomists are like, I don't know, maybe there's just something kind of crude about God you know, sticking his fingers into creation along the way. And I guess I'm sort of agnostic on that. I don't have many good answers to that. But I mean, it, it seems like we're already committed to intervention anyways, at least with the infusion of a human soul, right? So we already have the giver of forms. So I mean, like, <laughs> there's already one, then maybe there's more. I don't know. <laughs> right? But the, the other thing is, I know some people want to say, well, maybe it was all just set up right at the beginning with physics. But I, and I'd be curious on your thoughts of this, Mike, from a scientific perspective. I don't think fine-tuning entails uh, irreducible or biological complexity. I think these are logically dependent. Fine-tuning is a necessary condition for it, but I don't think it's sufficient for it. So I think in terms of evidential weight, the theist should be able to say, yeah, fine-tuning counts in favor of, of theism from physics, but so does. It's not double-counting to then point to biological complexity. So sorry, I just put three things on the table, and I'll let you guys pick at them however you want. So Matt, let's uh, unmute you and go back to you first. I'll go back to you first. Yeah, I guess first, I don't need evidential weight because God's not a probabilistic conjecture, I don't think. But uh, I think some people, yeah, are in the simplicity. They, they they see these things that are complex and it leads them to God, which is, I think, a feature or a facet of the more traditional way of proving God's existence, it, proving it biblically, right? If you look at Romans 1 or Wisdom 13, 
it's actually very, very basic. It's look at the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, it's the beauty and orderliness of the world as a whole. And so the structures Mike points towards, I see as subsets within that. Uh, there are particular instances which could point people to God as they see, oh my gosh, this, mm. this is so complex. Uh, personally, I, I, I'm no biochemist, but I tend to think more like Miller, Ostriaco, Swamidas, and those people that acceptation can uh, probably, if not now, eventually explain some of those. But to Mike's great credit, it doesn't fully explain everything at the moment. And so uh, I, I like how Mike has pointed out before in other contexts that you can't just say, well, one day science will prove X. Thankfully, I, I just don't really care because the way that God works in creation from a Thomistic point of view is he gives creatures natures by which they move themselves into being. I know Mike's probably heard all this before. Um, so I, again, I'm kind of not sure what the fruitfulness of this is, but uh, he moves them into being so they can move themselves. Uh, and so it, it, to my mind, maybe this is something new for the audience. I, I think of creation, you know, the machine analogy for cells may be helpful. Um, I think it's often looked upon as a, an object or a thing. I like Ratzinger calls it a melody uh, or a symphony. I really like that personalist approach. And my wife first introduced me to Tolkien on this. And I had a student uh, one time, Raphael Imgrund, who, who talked about this with me and gave me some great insight. You think about this creation as a symphony, a, um, a melody, or even a drama. Uh, it's actually more beautiful to my mind if it resolves itself internally without special instances of intervention. I know Mike doesn't call his interventions, right? And I know Stephen Meyer has his own way of accounting for it too, right? So we're all kind of aware of all these sides of the uh, debate. Um, but again, if someone wants to promote intelligent design in the way Mike does, my view is like, okay, we're on the same team. If they wanna use it to dismiss evolutionary theory and commit the intellectual sin of denying what's pretty obvious, then I have a problem with that. Um, one analogy in light of the personalist approach I take that I, I find fruitful is, so like with a parent to a child, you can think, well, I'm, my kids baked a birthday cake the other day. And how I think in the traditional classic Thomas sense, God is glorified all the more when the creatures do it themselves rather than having some kind of special action. Um, so if my kids are making the recipe and all of a sudden they come across some complex math, like they want to turn it into an eighth of the recipe, you know, for a fourth grader, that's a little bit challenging. So what's an eighth of a third of a third of da, 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 da. They're actually, the whole system is more beautiful if I can get them to do it themselves. So that's why theologically, I've just, you know, not been drawn that direction to ID. Um, I think biblically as well. You know, you think of, again, let's, this is more my area of the Bible, but people look at Psalm 8 and they'll say, well, God set the stars in the firmament. Therefore, they didn't, you know, occur through the Big Bang. And uh, I was knit together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. Well, that doesn't negate Dante when he speaks of the grandeur of creation and the sun that moved, uh, the love that moved the sun, the stars. Um so all that being said, I, I really, I'd be happier from an aesthetic point of view if there weren't um, instances so complex they couldn't have developed through evolution. 
But I really do think this that's an aesthetic judgment. It's what Newman would call the ill of sense. And thanks be to God, people are drawn to different types of arguments. And it seems that some people are more drawn to looking to those spectacular illustrations of uh, possible irreducible complexity. Um, I'm more drawn to the ordinary and think that, you know, like, for example, Chesterton says that you should be more enamored by the earth than the earthquake, you know, or by the sun and the eclipse. But not everybody's like me. So that's kind of a few thoughts I have on that. Yeah, no, that's that's good. And I took down some notes, but I, I th- saw you were too, Mike. So why don't you? Uh, okay. Ex- well, acceptation. I want to make sure we address acceptation at some point. I, yeah. I, I will do so. Yeah. Um, uh, but first, let me say that, you know, I, everybody has their own aesthetic uh, senses, some better than others, but it's the job of science to find out what's out in the world. You know, sometimes it fits our aesthetic senses, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we cannot fit theories just because to, to the way that we want, wish that the world would be. So um, let me address, first of all, the moons and planets, which uh, I, I agree that looking up the stars and seeing them move regularly, that's wonderful. And it speaks powerfully of something beyond nature, which set it in motion. That's great. But that does not, it is a non sequitur to say, therefore, these spectacularly complex organisms will be able to uh, produce themselves by uh, by just following simple laws. That that's something that requires investigation. It's it's not something that um, follows directly from that. And um, acceptation then acceptation acceptation for listeners is the idea that well maybe. Uh, something that's already in use could be used, could be borrowed and used for something else. I remember a story by Stephen Jay Gould or an observation by him saying that in somewhere in Africa, uh, people were taking old tires and cutting pieces out and using them as essentially sandals or flip-flops. So they were accepting the tires and using them for some other purpose. Well, okay, Uh, you know, maybe one can do that. But then people go and say, well, maybe you can exact other pieces of the cell and make these very, very complex new machines with them. And okay, that's a statement. Now go for it. Tell me how you do that. Give me some details. And in my experience, nobody ever goes any further than that. They say, well, maybe acceptation explains it. I don't mean uh, to be uh, snide, but you can ask, say, uh, Ken Miller, whom I've interacted with, or even Father Ostriaco, who is a biologist and a priest and, you know, smart guys. Nonetheless, they, they are pretty standard biologists, so they'll follow a standard line. If you ask them how the giraffe got its neck or how the uh, tiger got its stripes, I'm sure they'd give you an answer. 
but the level of detail they would give you, even as professional biologists, isn't going to be any different from what Rudyard Kipling would give you in his just so stories. So just because somebody, even if they got a PhD, even if they have got a PhD in evolutionary biology, just because they wave their hands and say something doesn't mean that it's been explained or even addressed. In the beginning, um, Pat, you were talking about this, this philosopher named Jack Smart, cleverly right. enough, an atheistic philosopher. And he addressed my argument for design in briefly in his book. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, it's, it's, we can't read it, I guess. I, I actually have the paragraph. Do you want me to read it real quick just so people yeah, well, have the context? Yeah. So this is, this is relevant because it's sort of a similar type objection here. And, and I wanted to highlight it for a couple of reasons If people want to read the prior paragraphs do so because I actually think that he did a good job of actually getting your argument right. So you have to give him credit there. He didn't, he didn't misrepresent it, but here's, here's the most relevant paragraph where he tries to respond to it. And then I'd like, of course, Mike to respond and then, and then Matt to get his feedback on here too. So he's playing off your example of the mousetrap, which people familiar with Dr. B here are familiar. He says the example of the mousetrap may well illustrate the notion of irreducible complexity, but Behe's concern is to apply this notion to biology. A mousetrap contains very few parts and has no redundancy built into it. A better analogy would be not to remove a component, but to make very tiny changes in the component itself by changing its length imperceptibly, says Jack Smart. The mousetrap might then function, but not quite so well. The usual reply to Behe is that minute changes in suitable molecules due to happy changes in DNA may lead to end results which may strike one as miraculous. And that's sort of the end of the relevant quote. But I want to I want to just like highlight a few things. He, he hasn't pointed to any scientific evidence of this ever happening. This really is just a just so <laughs> suggestion. Right. And this is a guy who would be familiar. Right. He would he would know <laughs> if there were scientific evidence to the contrary. But but still, there's something on the table here, Mike. So if you want to maybe respond and, and build yeah, my, yeah. my only point is, is that uh, for the audience, notice that he he doesn't. He just kind of gestures, says, well, yeah, you say it's irreducible complex, but hey, maybe if something got a little bigger or smaller, it would work and not as well. And it would arise that way. Mm-hmm. That's not an explanation. Certainly not from an academic. That's not an explanation. That's a dismissal without engagement. And the interesting thing is that except maybe for a few technical terms, that's no different from what Ken Miller, Father Ostriaco, or any evolutionary biologist since I wrote my book 25 years ago has come up with. All of the examples I pointed to are still utterly unexplained, despite the fact that many scientists simply hate this idea and are strongly motivated to, to, uh, to just, you know, get rid of it. And again, as I wrote in Darwin Devolves, the evidence is going strongly the other way. But but for just this, the, the point is one can't just wave at a very difficult technical problem and pretend that you have addressed it. it, it certainly not if you're, you're an academic claiming to inform people about the state of a topic. Mm-hmm. Matt, your thoughts on all that? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I have you muted. 
There we go. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I mean, again, when you're not a specialist, it's hard for me to say, but when I've listened to all sides of the story, it's kind of like the scientists debate amongst themselves. You guys are doing, uh, I think there's some mutual hand waving going on. Uh, at least from the outside perspective, when I see proposed transitional structures of an eye, a wing, you know, whale flippers from mammalian limbs on land, you name it, human whatever we have from hominins, I, I just, uh, but again, it doesn't make me lose sleep at night because the whole thing doesn't give me any problems to begin with. Uh, I, I see that Zeno's paradoxing come in. I, I do have the concern that the stick can always be moved. Zeno, that, you know, there's, you're never going to explain everything. And there's always one more bar. Uh, but again, uh, I can speak as a theologian. If Mike has proven this scientifically, then what do I have a problem with that? Um, I just don't really see it. I think the concern I have more deeply is it leads people inadvertently, probably most almost certainly, to a disenchantment of nature in the ordinary. So uh, I think what you see here is kind of a a parallel that you get in the Reformation, where in voluntarism that came out of Occam, what God causes the creature does not, and what the creature causes God does not. I think that's what the average person takes away from ID, probably despite your intentions. Um, so if this is irreducibly complex, it goes back to my earlier query, um, how does the metaphysics work? That's actually extremely relevant. Um, it's not a sideshow. Like if, is God doing something fundamentally different in an irreducibly complex structure compared to a non? And the way that we kind of Thomas would put this is that God doesn't, I know this is another person's phrasing, but push and pull atoms is kind of simplistic but he's not changing and altering the material and formal causality. I mean, the material and efficient causality of creation. I know, Pat, you mentioned the soul, but there's, there's nothing miraculous about the biology of it. Um, the infusion of the soul, we shouldn't think of as a substance that comes in from the outside. I'm sure you've heard Jim say this stuff before. Uh, as Ratzinger says, it occurs not next to, but through the natural processes. He doesn't sidestep nature that's the Ratzingerian and Thomistic typical way of looking at it. But there still is a direct infusion. It's not something that itself evolves. Yeah, but what do you mean by infusion? That's it's that's the other thing too. Like Ratzinger is good at Yeah, I don't think it's Cartesian where you're just dropping by any means. Yeah, like I, that, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's something there's something God does, and you can remain very apophatic about what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um the Ratzinger likes to take the relational approach where the first time that a being could utter thou to God, right? You're not going to uh, be able to indicate through paleontology when the uh, Rubicon of anthropogenesis was crossed. I like that line from Ratzinger, but he, he would not deny. And I, I was compelled by what he said because I already thought it anyway, is I, I just don't mind if there's a, a, a steady stream of continuity. I admit that there's not. I'm glad that Mike points this out. Uh, I, I know it could be considered as wishful thinking. Like I said, it'd be, I would love it if it was continuous and we could show the whole thing. I'm not trying to say that's how you get to God uh, through wishful thinking. I'm just saying that from that side of things, I think the traditional instinct of a lot of us Thomas types is we find God more glorified through the continuity 
and increasing creaturely causality rather than sort of sidestepping it. And so that's where that question comes back for like, that, if we can articulate more, what is he doing exactly mm -hmm. that's different, if Matt, anything? Matt, I, I, I read that you're a Rassinger scholar and I, I, I love his work too. And I, let me just, uh, I'd like to read a passage from his book, um, In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of Stor the Story of Creation and the Fall. And I, I'd just like to get your comments on it. Uh, in, one, in one passage, he directly talks about the mechanism of evolution. On page 54, I've got here, see, I came prepared. Uh, he says, he writes this, he says, let us go directly to the question of evolution and its mechanisms. Microbiology and biochemistry have brought revolutionary insights here. Molecular machines, function, the functioning of molecular machines presupposes a precisely thought through and therefore reasonable design. And then on the next page, after some intervening, he says, he says, we must have the audacity to say that the great projects of the living creation are not the products of chance and error. They point to a creating reason and show us a creating intelligence. And they do so more luminously and radiantly today than ever before. I I put up this quote in, in routinely in my talks, at least to Catholic audiences, saying that he thinks that the discoveries of biochemistry and microbiology have a special relevance to our age, that they show precisely thought through stuff, that is intelligent design, and it's based on physical evidence. That is the, uh, that is the, um, well, the structures of the molecular machines. I was wondering if, if you ever noticed that passage and what you think of it. Oh. Yeah, I, I have, in fact, oh, yeah. As a, yeah, thank you, I, I appreciate that. Um, I've noticed that one, and also, he actually uses the expression uh, intelligent design in an audience, uh, progetto intelligente. Um, he's using it a different way than you do, I think, largely. Also, when he talks about chance, um, he can be quoted out of context. Uh, depending on what you mean with that quote, it could be out of context. Because he also has a line where he says, you know, not everything's by chance. Each person is necessary. That's actually metaphysically incorrect if you say each person's necessary. So, uh, but he is ultimately concerned that the whole is not by chance. He's okay with individual chance on the local level. And so is the ITC, the International Theological Commission. Uh, one of the documents they wrote, you're probably aware of, is communion and stewardship um, on the human person, the image of God, where they make a, a declaration about the history of life and its evolution and, and yada, yada, yada. Um, but there and elsewhere, the church says that contingency or chance is compatible with creation and can only be contingent because God made it so, which is a very Thomistic thing to say. Um, so in short, no, he, he's not trying to say there that irreducibly complex structures are such and cannot have arisen through chance. Um, 
that's just not his overall so thought. Just, he, just for just for the audience, I want to maybe draw out the notion of, of chance and and even randomness has a very technical definition in biology, which I'm sure Mike can elaborate much better than than I. Um, but you know, obviously Thomas follows Aristotle, right? He thinks that chance always presupposes some deeper order of regularity, right? So you've got the chance event of the farmer discovering the the buried treasure, which depends upon two non-chance lines of causality, right? So God can bring about things by chance, but they're not random, right? <laughs> In the sense that many Darwinian uh, evolutionary biologists would claim. So I want to get both your thoughts on this. Uh, maybe when he's arguing against chance, Ratzinger, uh, he's not arguing against the Thomistic understanding of it. Of, of course not, right? But he's arguing against the, the Darwinian understanding of that. And that does that does strike me as somebody. Oh no, was 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 uh, was was rats? Is is he? Is, <laughs> he sounds like he almost read your books, Doctor yeah. B. <laughs> Maybe. But yeah, yeah I just want to. I just want to. Yeah, I just wanted to put that out there and get your further thoughts on that. Okay. Yeah. Let, let, let me. Maybe I can say something first. And uh, uh, to my mind, well, chance or random means that nobody intended it to happen, and not even. God intended something to happen for itself. Here's, here's an example. Suppose there was a hitman, a murderer, who selected his vic victim and caused his death by means that not even the best detective in the world could distinguish from ch by chance. Nonetheless, I think we would agree that that was murder. If God caused something or intended or set things up for something to happen, some uh, mutation, um, if he set it up, even if we don't know, if we can't distinguish it from everything else going on, that wasn't random. That was intended. If the murderer killed 10 people in the same subtle way that nobody could figure out how it was done, but all those 10 people had been scheduled to be witnesses at his upcoming drug trial, we would be certain that it was murder. We would not ascribe that to chance because we saw the, the purpose behind the event. If God sets up hundreds of mutations and we can't distinguish where they happened or how they happened, and it gives rise to a complex molecular machine, that is design, and we can tell, we can be morally certain it was design, just in the same way we could be morally certain that those 10 people were killed, because we have a purposeful arrangement of parts. So in my mind, it's chance is not just that we humans can't figure out, distinguish it from some random occurrence. It's that not even God intended something to occur for itself. Okay. Matt, it says your mic isn't connected right now. I tried to unmute you. I think a little technical issue. Um, so while he, while he works on that, um, I do want to make sure we come back to the enchantment of nature thing. And um, hold on, Matt, let's see. Yeah, it still says your your mic isn't connected. Take your time, Matt. I'll I'll feel the airwaves here for a minute because part of that I wonder how much of it depends sort of on your background. I think Mike, we're we're similar, more similar maybe in some respects, maybe than Matt is because you know Matt's from what I understand, Matt's um, uh, cradle Catholic always had a sort of strong faith. You had a strong faith, but it was a strong faith that was brought up with an acceptance of an evolutionary paradigm 
which you later seem to realize it's an instance of the emperor having no clothes. Me, I was not religious, and I had no issue with the evolutionary um, paradigm. So, like, to me, for a long stretch of my life, like, nature was already wholly disenchanted, right? There's, there's no enchantment left, right? So, but then, you know, finding your work and other work, it starts to, it starts to re-enchant it, oh. right? And and then back in, in, the, in the other direction. So, I can see, I can definitely see what, what Matt's saying and how you know, that, that he, he has a, a perspective on it that could seem to maybe lead in the other direction, but that just wasn't the case for me. And let's, and I think if we're being honest, so many people in our culture today, they don't have a very enchanted view of nature to begin with. Maybe you just want to throw some thoughts out there while I wait for Matt to reconnect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you can be enchanted by things and, and in various ways, you can be enchanted just because, oh, something's so cool and you see it for the first time. It's so beautiful. And, you know, it, it's really special. And then you can be enchanted with something which you figure out how it works and say, oh, wow, isn't that neat? This goes there and this goes here and this goes there. Um, so I, I, I think that, well, I, I have a little bit of both. Uh, and perhaps for yourself, it was the rediscovery of how all these things fit together that is, it is uh, more enchanting. But what you don't get enchanted by, at least as far as I can see, is a, a lump of mashed potatoes or things that just kind of, you know, or pool balls. You haven't had my wife's mashed potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> the truth. Well, the, or, the ordinary. Uh, right. No, I, yeah, I get your, totally get your point. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, there right, he is. He's, he's back. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, Matt. We're just talking about the enchantment of nature, but you haven't missed much. But continue, Mike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. My computer internet died. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was just saying that um, that we are enchanted by things that are beautiful. And and um, the more we know about nature, the essentially the more beautiful it is. So we have more and more and more reasons to to be impressed and and overjoyed. Right. Yeah. So I want to circle back and see if Matt had any uh, comments uh, from your previous statement, if they're still fresh enough in his memory. And then if you guys don't mind, I'd like to maybe just dedicate a little time to taking some questions from the audience. So, yeah, back to you, Matt. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What was the last one? Sorry, that that threw me off. We were talking about chance was the thing we were talking about previously. Ooh, yeah. Uh, if I understood what Mike said, uh, recall what he said, I think it's fairly compatible with the way I think about it, at least that. Uh, the Ratzinger's concern, like the ITC or any Catholic, would be absolute chance, if you want to call it that, that there's no first cause or design or maintenance. Uh, to me, that's trivial from a theological perspective. Um, but again, it depends on your audience. Like I think Mike even mentioned, or, or you did, Pat, um, you know, I've not been in the secular academy for 22 years now. I've been in Catholic environments. And... Um, so <laughs> the funny thing is I end up having to find myself defend reason more than I have to defend faith. And um, so what you get there is people think that if there's any contingency at all, um, that, that you have to reject evolution just because it involves what, from our perspective, um, are random mutations. Uh, but from God's perspective, and I, I think this accords with Mike's, uh, they're not random from God's perspective. Um, so depending on whether they're pre-planned or I know Meyer has his own version of this specified complex information or something like that. 
Um, so yeah, I think it kind of circles back to the, what is different in God's causality. Um, and just the, the point that it seems that in the way ID is often conveyed, that what is caused by God is not caused by the creature. And what's caused by the creature, if you can explain it naturally, it's not caused by God. And, and I think that may be something that gets to the heart of what a atomic concern is. Um, what is different in God's causality there? So that's just another sort of way of helping okay. to think through deeper. Maybe I could just react to that a second. I want I, you I, to. Yeah. I, I read a few things from your most recent book of uh, From the Dust of the Earth that I could get on Amazon, free, free, uh, <laughs> free views. Uh, I would have read the whole book itself, but I couldn't get it in time for this. Uh, this. Anyway, in a number of places, you say ID proponents, you know, have this view, or you quote other people saying ID proponents have this kind of benighted view. And what I never saw were quotations. You say that you re you hear that, you know, in ID, oh, you know, some people say that. Well, let, let me just finish and okay. say that, yeah. uh, that, you know, what is caused by nature is not caused by God and what's caused by God is not caused by nature. I'd love to see you, you know, come up with a quotation where somebody in the lead of the ID movement, me, Steve Meyer, Bill Dembski, says anything remotely like that. That seems to me to be a popular level New York Times article type of impression. And in, again, in, in my experience, it's it's been a real source of frustration for 20 odd years yeah no that thank you for that um i did have to cut 90 some pages of footnotes many of which were in the id discussions uh yeah. the editor's request but no no one no one says that it's it's the implication that again i'm and i've, I've read a few of your books right i've read one or two of myers uh parts of dembski's um but it's the implication. And that's why I think I find this valuable. First of all, I, I feel like I often get the impression, maybe it's because you're always under attack, but I feel like ID is often a very fundamentally defensive endeavor. But so like, what what is the, you know, okay, here's the one about this. If there's the one causes the other, the other doesn't cause the other. It's because the way the arguments are written and left in a very apophatic way and the way people receive them. So it's again, this is not New York Times, this is nine out of 10 people who read your books, what they think is that those two are exclusive. It's very heavily implied that we have proven God because the creatures cannot have achieved this on their own. Uh, so that's what I mean by that statement. Okay, well, uh that should not be ascribed to ID thinkers if it's due to people who read things into their work. And uh, we, as, you, as you've said, you think ID is science. It's making scientific claims about what went on and how it could have gotten there. And perhaps theologians are reading scientific prose and saying, why isn't this guy talking about God's causality and trying to find something that is properly not in that discussion? If I'm writing as a biochemist, 
I'm not going to talk about what matters causality is and whether, you know, it's the same as God's causality. I'm just going to talk about, you know, the laws of nature and, and observable things. So I, I think, again, I, I, you know, don't want to beat this, but I, I have felt ill used over the decades by many Thomists who are who read things into my work that I did not intend and that are not there. And when asked about it, they say, well, that was the implication. And I think that's not the implication at all. And um, uh, and so I think it, it confuses the it confuses the issue. Well, that's good. The, the it's just that if it doesn't imply it, then I then it's where science runs up against metaphysics, and you have to get the metaphysics at some point. So, um, you know, if they don't have this competition of creaturely and divine causality, it's what I brought up earlier. An account needs to be given. This is where, like John Paul says, faith can purify science from false absolutes, uh, from um, superstition, but. Science can purify faith from, uh, I butchered the quote, but science purifies faith from superstition. Faith purifies science from false absolutes. There we go. I think this is where you know, science, you've done a good job of here's the evidence. Da, 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 da. But at a certain point, we, the implication is what the implication is. It's You have to draw the implications. And if you don't, then you've got to be able to articulate how is the divine and creaturely causality relationship played out here? So that's why I thought this was exciting is we can mm -hmm. give you the articulation. You can try to try to speak to, well, if this is a designer, you know, of some kind, what is going on differently in the causality there? And if you can't do that, then again, I kind of just yawn because I already kind of knew about God and I, and <laughs> I see these more probabilistic arguments and god is put on the plane of a material efficient cause which could in principle be a gap that's closed and disproven scientifically when that's not the catholic metaphysical approach of the tradition at least that was the second of three parts in a series featuring michael behe and matthew ramage talking intelligent design philosophy and theology they're hosted by Pat Flynn here, and we say thanks to him for giving us permission to republish this audio from his Philosophy for the People podcast. Stay tuned for more to come. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.